0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening and welcome. This is an educational podcast of sorts that will help you, hopefully, better understand your compliance obligations. We hope you'll enjoy these additional materials. And as always, if you're one of our ongoing comprehensive clients, don't hesitate to reach out with your questions because at Advisor Compliance Services, we love to talk compliance. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Something a little bit new this week. It's just going to be me talking to you about uh, our upcoming review. Lori's going to take a bit of a break. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different than usual, right? It's going to be more instructional as opposed to substantive. Previously, uh, we spent a lot of time discussing kind of headier and airier stuff. We're going to kind of get into that a little bit here, but here what I'm really here to talk about is a specific review, the custody review. It's one of the four that we do, well, one of the several that we do for you every year. We, we do at least four usually. At any rate, uh, for those of you who have done the custody review before, you're going to know what this is all about. We're going to throw in a little bit of a wrinkle this year. But for folks who haven't, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to actually talk through that entire review checklist that you're going to get pretty thoroughly. Uh, And so that should help you out in answering any of your questions or concerns and in actually getting through the review yourself. So, So don't worry, you're going to be just fine. I'm going to dive in right now. The big reveal is going to be that if you did a review last year, then what you're actually going to get this year is a copy of last year's checklist, your completed checklist, what you did, and then the report that we produced for you. Why? Well, that's a good question, right? It's because everything else, even though it's all changing, custody has stayed pretty much the same over the course of this last year. And and thank God for that, really, right? Because everything has been a little topsy-turvy in compliance. So what do we want you to do with it? Well, we want you to look over your answers to last year's checklist and the report that we gave you review it if there have been any changes right if you've had any changes to your practices or any of your answers or anything like that go ahead and send back those changes to us annotated either on the checklist or i guess you can send it back in an email and we're going to get you whatever recommendations we have for you based upon those changes and if there have been no changes at all that's great let us know that too easy peasy lemon squeezy we know that everybody's really busy We're going to try, we're trying to do this in a way because nothing has changed to sort of let you concentrate on your clients and your families instead of being bogged down in a review that you've already done, given the same answers, getting the same sort of reports. So for the rest of you, you're going to get a a custody practices review checklist, right? With the intro, that clock's in at about seven pages. It sounds an awful lot bigger and scarier than it really is. It's not big and it's not scary. And in fact, I'm going to jump right into it. Right now, I'm going to read along, or you can read along with me. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read along with the questions. I'm going to give you a little bit of commentary piece by piece. You can go ahead and take the introductory side and you can flip that over right now. You can read that later. I'm not going to read that to you. I am not LeVar Burton. This is not reading Rainbow. You would prefer to not hear me read things. So, at any rate, beginning from the beginning, which is always the best place to begin, let's start with page two Custodians. Okay. It starts off very straightforward. The very first question, are all the assets for which you provide investment management services held at a qualified custodian? There's a definition there, qualified custodian too. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you the answer on this. It's almost always going to be a yes. So many of you use TDA or Schwab or SSG or any of the various large warehouses or stuff like that. I can't imagine that there are many of you that have a lot of non-qualified custodians. Uh, There may be other and differing circumstances, of course, right? Everybody's a little bit different. Everybody does business a little bit differently, but almost always, right? It's going to be a yes. So the next question, provide the names of all qualified custodians that hold 10% or more of client assets for which your firm provides investment management services. I'm stressing the 10% or more here. And the reason is this. I don't need to know each and every one of your custodia. This is really about helping Jen and Lori and me understand if the answers to your ADV Part 1 located in your ADB part one are accurate or if they need updating. Uh, the third question has the firm verified that all qualified custodians send clients an account statement at least quarterly to each client for which it maintains client funds and securities that details all transactions within the account for the reporting period. There's a a parenthetical here that says, this can be done in the form of a receipt of duplicate account statements. So again, this is another one of these where yes is probably the answer. It would be uncommon to have a no answer. Moving along to the dreaded, or not so dreaded, direct fee deduction. I mean, of course, you guys don't dread it. That's how you get paid. So the question, does the firm directly deduct its advisory fees from client accounts? Many of you do, and that's fine. Yes is a perfectly acceptable answer. If you get a yes, we're going to move right down to the next part of the outline section of the question. Does the firm have written authorization from its clients to deduct these advisory fees from their account? Look, if you're not sure about this, that's fine. If you're directly deducting advisory fees, I admonish you to check your agreement You're probably going to find this in your agreement. Your agreement, I assure you, if Lori or I have written your agreement for you, we always include this in there if you do direct fee deduction. That's where we make sure to have evidence of it. Also, right, alternatively, you can look in some of those custodial documents as well. But almost always, the answer is going to be yes. You can't get direct fee deduction without that authorization. The next question is, uh, are independent qualified custodians used for all accounts where direct fee deductions occur? This is a yes as well. You're going to note that all of these questions that fall sort of along this outline format, if you're familiar with it, and this varies a little bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, right? The SEC, some states are a little bit different, but there are safeguards in place when you directly deduct your advisory fees. probably heard Lori say this to you, direct fee deduction is a form of custody. You have access to client funds or securities. So Absent some sort of an exemption or an exception to that rule, you'd get kind of stuck doing a surprise annual audit. Well, of course, you know that this would mean that basically every single advisor in America would have to get a surprise annual audit. So there are exemptions to it. And the exemptions are these things that you're seeing listed out here. They may not necessarily apply to you depending on the jurisdiction that you're in. Uh, so. I'll move on again, right? Does the firm send a copy of a fee invoice to the client at the same time it initiates the deduction of the advisory fee with the custodian? This is one of those things that varies by jurisdiction a little bit, but it's very simple, right? Are you sending an invoice to the client the same time that you initiate that fee deduction? That's all we're looking for here. And again, we'll be able to kind of help guide you in that depending on your answer. Does the firm provide a report to its clients that shows that deduction? of its advisory fees. Same thing. It's another safeguard. Those things tend to vary a little bit by jurisdiction. We can guide you based on your answer. Then there's a last part, right? Does the firm's report urge clients to compare the advisory fee shown in the firm's reporting with the advisory fee shown in the custodian's account, right? Because they're going to get these invoices from the custodian. They're going to get this kind of an invoice or report from you as well. Some jurisdictions, they just want you to urge the client to hold them up side by side and make sure that they say the same thing. So it's pretty straightforward stuff. The last question in this section is Does the firm disclose in its ADV Part 2A, Item 15, that it has custody due to direct fee deduction? If you're directly deducting fees, of course, the answer should be yes. If the answer is no, if you look in there and you don't see it, that's fine. You don't have to be terrified. We'll go ahead, we'll get that amended for you, and we'll get it filed. It won't be the end of the world. So the next stuff is a little bit more. Eh. Well, it's the receipt of client funds or securities. Again, we know that custody is having access to, directly or indirectly, clients, funds, or securities. So this is really the nitty gritty of the the whole thing. So question one, does the firm ever accept checks from clients to be forwarded to the client's custodian? This happens from time to time, right? Sometimes clients just write a check, they send it your way, and they think, oh, well, you know, my guy's... Gonna just send it on to the the custodian. You know, you want to discourage that. That is custody. Uh, the examiners don't love that, but they let us all get away with it because, in the second question, you'll note, does the firm maintain a check log or similar documentation that documents what was received, the date that it was received, the date that it was forwarded, and where it was forwarded? That's your check log, right? If you've spoken with Jen ever about this, she's asked you, do you keep a check log? That's what she's talking about, right? And it's important to note. If you do receive these checks, you've got three days to get them out of your sandwich clamps. Three days. And it's okay to get these funds and forward them on. But as I said, you know, the, the examiners prefer that you would discourage it. Now, this next one, it's not as okay. Does the firm ever receive securities from clients to be forwarded to your the client's custodian? This would be a very rare occurrence if it ever happened. Uh, but if it did happen, right, what you're going to want to do is actually send it back to wherever you got this from. You cannot be the pivot person on one of these sorts of transactions. And you'll note that that's what you're, you know, essentially the question in the next question gives you the right answer. Does a firm return the security to the sender within three business days and then maintain an internal record to demonstrate uh, compliance with this requirement? Normally people, the, the answer is going to be no to the, o- uh, the overarching question and you're never really going to have to get down into that second question. Okay. Authorizations to transfer funds or make disbursements in clients' accounts. Standing letters of authorization. I don't know how many times I have heard or have even personally given an explanation of what standing letters of authorization are, but I'm going to go ahead and do it one more time. Not necessarily what a standing letter of authorization is. I think everybody knows that, right? You know that They're not necessarily called standing letters of authorization in terms of the title or the nomenclature, but usually the, the hang-up, you know, right? Sometimes they're move money forms, et cetera. But the hang-up is usually first and third party. And this is going to help us understand better these next couple of questions. So a first party standing letter of authorization, right, is where is where the, the account, the to and the from account are like titled, right? So for example, Scott Snipke's IRA to Scott Snipke's checking account. Okay, that's a first party. Now I'm going to use my own personal circumstances in the second situation to describe a third-party standing letter of authorization. My wife and I, we do not have the same last name. So we have a checking account. It's Scott Snipke and Josette Savage joint checking account. If I had a standing letter of authorization that transferred money from Scott Snipke's IRA to Scott Snipke and Josette Savage's joint checking account, those are non-like titled accounts. Non-like titled accounts means third-party SLOA that would be a third party SLOA. So you should be, based upon that explanation, able to answer these following questions, right? And again, just so we know, right? Standing letters of authorization sometimes are called move money transfer forms or whatever, right? But whatever they are, they're usually utilized or rather they're provided by your custodian in an effort to avoid the scenario where your client has to keep asking you and signing every month to move money from one place to the next uh, or from one account to the next. Uh, so that's what that just means it's a standing letter of authorization, one that continues on over a period of time as opposed to one that just works for a one time use. I'm going to skip down to third party SLOAs here. So the question is, is does the firm report all cash and securities held in an account that has that the firm has a third party SLOA for its ADV or for in its ADV part one A item nine? If you've seen your ADV, there's two parts of it. It's really not that important. But the bottom line is, is every year during your update, you've got to take a look at the number of accounts to which I guess you have these standing letters of authorization tied, and then the amount of money that's in those accounts. And then we'll go ahead every year, make that adjustment for you, and make sure that it's in the item nine. It's something that the regulators want to see. The answer is probably, yeah, you do uh, do that. Uh, uh, Next question. Does the firm disclose that it has custody as a result of third-party SLOAs in part two A, item 15? It's very similar to the previous question related to direct fee deduction if you do disclose that you have a, f- a form of custody as a result of third-party SLOAs in your item 15, great. If you don't, don't worry. We will get it in there for you. The next question is, does the firm maintain an internal record of all third-party SLOA accounts in such a manner that the firm can validate the amount it reports in its item or its part 1A item 9? This is important because examiners are starting to ask for it. Uh, so if you don't happen, if you don't, if you're not yet keeping a record like that, don't panic. It isn't the end of the world. We can help you kind of work through that. It's not It's not that big of a deal, but it's something that you're going to want to keep or moving forward because, as we said, or as I said, sorry, uh, examiners are starting to ask about it. Does the firm follow the seven custody safeguards listed below to avoid the need to uh, for the surprise annual audit for third-party SLOAs it has in place? Inside baseball here. Numbers one through five and number seven, that's stuff that you don't do, you don't have any control over. It's only number six. So that brings us to the next question, which is uh, describe the firm's process for documenting and complying with safeguard six above. So again, you don't do any of the one through five, and you don't do number seven. So as long as you're complying with number six, then the answer to the question above should be, yes, we are following the seven safeguards. Again, bringing you down to the question, okay, how do you follow number six? What's your process? And here, all we're asking for is, you know, do you have a record or a process that you use or a record that you make that shows that third-party standing letters of authorization aren't going to someone at your firm or someone or you know, located at your firm's location, at your firm's lo- address? It's a simple thing to do, and it'll keep you out of a mess right? If you have a process, just go ahead and explain it here and, 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 you know, we'll take a look at it. Next question. Uh, next section is general custody stuff. Okay. The first question here asks if the firm or any related person has a general power of attorney for any client. Okay. For years, I saw this question being always answered. No lately. Uh, we've been getting more yeses and I want to be really clear about this. This is interesting. I understand why this is happening as folks start to age. Uh, usually folks, parents or family members are clients of a firm. As they start to get older, they may need help. They may be in an assisted living situation, right? Where they're no longer taking care of their uh, their assets. And, and who better to take care of it? But, you know, your son or your daughter or your niece or your nephew, who's a, you know, a, a financial professional. You guys are m- more than well situated to help these people. But here's the wrinkle. If they're clients and you have a general power of attorney, There is a strong possibility that this creates custody. Why am I using hedging language like there's a strong possibility here? Well, because there is no exception. There's no basis for me to assert that there is no custody here. I can say that it feels an awful lot like a similar situation that occurs with trustees where the regulators have acknowledged the SEC and some state regulators have acknowledged an exemption, at least in the case of family members, close family members. But unfortunately, at this time, for general powers of attorney, they have not recognized any sort of an exception for that. So there's a distinct possibility that if you have a general power of attorney, say, or your mom or your dad or your aunt or your uncle's uh, assets, and an examiner comes in and finds that and you're not getting that audited, there's a strong possibility that they're at the very least going to make you get that start getting that audited or maybe have that person no longer be a client, however that may work. So it's just something kind of to put on your radar. Uh, The next question is, is, does the firm or any related person act as a general partner managing member or similar position for a limited partnership or pooled investment vehicle? That's real straightforward, right? It's custody. You're going to know the answer to that. Uh, How about does the firm or any related person serve as a trustee for any client? Well, we've already gone over this, right? There are scenarios where this happens from time to time. There's a close family member, an aunt, an uncle, a mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, where this happens. As I mentioned, as I alluded to above, the SEC has an exception for that, right? And some states also have an exception for that. It's important to note, though, that the exception that the SEC grants is wider than any uh, any state's exception that I've seen. Some states will wholesale adopt the SEC's exception, which is for... You know, family members and it will also accept if if you're a trustee for a close personal friend with a longstanding relationship. This does not mean a close personal friend with whom you have a longstanding relationship as the result of your advisory relationship. It has to arise outside of and you know before the advisory relationship for the SEC to recognize it. But most states do not go that far. One state I know that does not go that far is the state of California. At any rate, if you are a trustee for a client, let us know. Let us know whether you're, of course. Uh, recognizing that relationship in item nine of your part one, a, as we mentioned in the next one. And if you don't go ahead and let us know why the reason you would have that in your item nine of your part one, a is because you're getting it audited, right? You're accepting that you have custody in it and you recognize that it's not subject to any of those exceptions. If the answer to that question is no, we have here, if no, explain, then chances are the answer is going to be, well, you know, hey, here's this exception that we fall under or et cetera. But if you have any questions, please reach out to Jen, reach out to me. We can try to help you with this. Okay. Does the firm or any related person have check writing authority in any client account? That's very straightforward. If, If you have check writing authority in someone's account, you're going to have custody. All right. Under, well, under almost every possible scenario. The next question is, does the firm or any related person have access to a client's login credentials for a client's outside or held away account? So this is just, look, if you've got my credentials for my 401k, because, you know, you can't otherwise get access to it. You can't otherwise make trades and you can't otherwise view what I have in there. Okay. If you have those credentials, this is kind of wonky, but. There's a very strong possibility that uh, if you're an SEC advisor, right, you're going to have custody. Now, it's really usually going to hinge on, and this is kind of pared down, but whether or not you have the ability to withdraw funds or securities or initiate any type of transfer. And that's even going to bear down all the way to, you know, if you can push a button and have a, you know, have it liquidated and a check sent to my house, that's probably that's going to count. And that's that second question. But that's for an SEC advisor. For a state registered advisor, you've got a whole other worry beyond custody. And that's the dishonest, unethical business practice rule. If you've got client logins, then almost every state that I can think of regards that as a dishonest or unethical business practice. Some call it fraud, which is a very ugly word. They don't like to see you having that access because, A, of course, it can be custody. B, they think that you're misleading whoever the login is with. That's the law. That's a rule. I didn't make it. I didn't say it was necessarily sane. (laughs) Either way. Last question. Does the firm require the prepayment of advisory fees of $1,200 or more, $500 or more for state registered advisory for services to be performed six months or more in advance? You know, this would just trigger that you would have to, you know, tack your balance sheet on to your part two. Most people don't do this. It's not a very common practice. So at any rate, that's it. And, and, you know, of course, we'd like you to return this checklist to us by the 31st of August. Please do, right? If you don't, We can't guarantee that we can get you a report back because, you know, this is part of our rolling services that we provide you. So we move kind of on to the next thing. And, And we've also got, of course, all the standard fires that we're putting out day in and day out. Either way, this isn't necessarily very hard. So either way, the last, I guess I'll wrap it up with this. If you still have questions, right, I advise you to reach out, right? Pick up the phone, give me a call, get on, you know, get on the email, shoot me an email. But look, don't necessarily put your questions or any additional commentary that seeks explanation into the checklist. And I say this for this reason. One day, this is something that you're going to hand to an examiner. They're going to grab it up, they're going to look at it, and they're going to review it. So please feel free to go ahead and email me or call me if you have questions, but don't give the examiners anything else more exciting to look at, I guess. Okay, that's it. That's all I've got. Thanks for your time. I know it took a few minutes, and I do apologize. And I even talked fast. But uh, thanks for your time. Take care.